um, but I also believe that, you know, uh, what is it? To whom much is given, much is asked. Uh, and, you know, you never, I, I said earlier, you never do anything by yourself. Right. Uh, and I think that's part of the thing that, that motivates me is, is you, there are people I've worked with who uh, uh, continue to work, you know, in situations that are much more difficult than what I work in, right? And continue to keep their head down and their shoulders the, the wheel, right? Um, and so, uh, um, it, you know, I, I don't have it here in this office, but, you know, it, it, uh, I need to put it up. I have a picture of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather uh, coming out of the mill. Right, they're wearing their work clothes, right, and they're covered with uh, you know, dust from the, their steel mill, right, so they're covered with stuff and dust. So, so whenever I'm feeling sorry for myself, oh, God, I'm so stressed, I'm working so hard, I'd look at that picture and say, you know, that's hard work. You get to work in the shade. <laughs> you know, so you know, dry your tears and get back to work. That's right. Everyone, welcome to another fantastic episode of the Hardwood Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, a.k.a. the Hip Hop Forester. And I'm sitting here also with my co-host, Bennett Alupo, as we have been uh, working to get uh, this this scholar uh, on the podcast. We've been, we've been working because the, he is one that we've been wanting to talk to for a while. Everyone, um, I'm talking to none other than the individual that I met when he first came to, to Yale uh, when I was working here. And uh, really graced us uh, not just with the scholarship and presence, but also ideas, and it's manifested into other centers and things that are growing. And so we're here with none other than Professor, and that is Professor Gerald Torres. Dr. Torres, thank you for your time, and thank you for allowing us to talk with you. Well, thank you, Tom. It's really good to see you again. Uh, I, I miss your presence around the around the school. It's uh, thanks. Uh, it'd be it'd be good to have you around. Um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to engage you in conversation. Um, you know, we can talk about any number of things, right? Topics that are specific to Yale, but topics that are specific to environmental justice mm -hmm. or the environmental movement uh, globally, which we can talk about that because there have been, you know, many, as you know, many changes, many advancements. Um, and so I'm, I'm open to talk about anything. This is great. You know, I always have, you know, I always have good conversations, so I'm ready. Okay. All right. Well, that actually, you already set the tone. You mentioned three things. Now, I'm coming up visiting from North Carolina, which is the state that's known as the birthplace of the environmental justice movement, the movement. But environmental injustices have been happening before the movement. And so I'd like to, uh, so I want to ask you, one, if it's, I, I don't think it's cliche, I hope it's not. Could you tell me how you got interested first in the environmental justice movement and recognize that you have a more background, everyone, you need to know that. I'd like to know how that also like feeds into your interest in this? Well, it, it actually goes way back before law. It goes way back before college. Uh, uh, and I always had two interests, uh, at a, a, you know, kind of ex, extracurricular interests, right? So what, I was all, I've always been an environmentalist. Uh, uh, I, you know, I was a member of the Sierra Club when it used to be a real club, right? When you used to have to be nominated to be a member. Uh, uh, so that means, that tells you how old I am, one. Right. Right. Second, uh, um, I was always, you know, I grew up in the middle of the uh, emerging civil rights movement, 
So I was involved in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement in Southern California, and the environment movement. Uh, and and that's kind of what I did, and it, it helped kind of define both my um, my my political outlook broadly, but also ultimately came to define my scholarly uh, uh, and my career uh, uh, choices. So that uh, you know, when I went to law school, uh, I was I wanted to to do civil rights work, which I did do when I graduated law school. Uh, but I always remained interested in environmental law. Now, what people don't remember, because everybody you know, takes their baseline from a different spot, environmental law is a relatively new thing as a subject, right? So the, the, I don't remember when the first environmental law course was offered, but my bet is that it was mid-70s. So it's, you know, which I know, Current students think that's say ancient history, but you know, I call that a living memory. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so um, uh, I worked for the Children's Defense Fund in Washington D.C., uh, and then uh, when I wanted to change gears and and move to the environment, I went and studied with Joe Sachs uh, at the University of Michigan. And Joe, in many ways, thought of as the uh, kind of the father of environmental law. Uh, one of the earliest environmental uh, law scholars. Uh, and so I basically sat at his knee for two years and learned everything I could, right? Uh, uh, and then uh, I was going to go back into private practice um, when I graduated from, from Michi Michigan. And uh, and Joe said, no, no, you're not here. You need to go to the academy. So he kind of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck, which means to the academy. So that's, that's, where I, that's why I end up here. Um, so I did that. There's one other thing that I... One other, path that I want to uh, 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 talk about because it's, 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 it's like a tributary in, 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 uh, in environmental justice. So that's uh, food, agriculture and food policy. So I think this is true. I don't know. You'll have to you know, do, do research and, and catch me out on this if I'm wrong. Okay. But I, I think I offered the first agricultural law class in a modern American law school back in the, uh, would have been the mid eighties when I was at Minnesota. And part of it was, was, uh, uh, you know, when I was teaching in Minnesota, probably half my students there came from farm backgrounds. Right. And then I'd start look around and, and so they said, maybe we ought to, you know, this is a huge part of the economy. Right. And in terms of the environment, it's regulated completely differently. Right. And it, and you know, People don't think of agriculture and agricultural law as basically a resource courses, you know, water, soil, you know, uh, 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 you know, crops or, or plants or plants. But then you use then you trees. Exact silviculture is part of it, right? Managing uh, uh, wildlife, right, to both in, enhance wildlife but also you know protect uh, farms from you know depredation by wildlife. So it all comes together. So I, I, I started doing that and then moved into the environmental regulation of agriculture. And I, I as a, a friend of mine at, uh, at uh, Drake Law School said, you know, I was teaching environmental regulation of agriculture before it was cool, right? So, so to, <laughs> <laughs> I knew on that. Oh, right. And so I haven't been able to do that here to teach that class here, but I've been able to integrate 
agricultural issues and food issues. Now everybody talks about it as food systems, right, into my environmental justice work. But so that's kind of like, like deep background. By uh, active background in environmental justice came, uh, dates got back to 1978, so a long time ago, when the Sierra Club, the um, uh, Urban League, and the a group that doesn't exist anymore except maybe in its carnation as the Blue-Green you know, Alliance, but it was called uh, Environmentalists for Full Employment, and it was a union-based environmental group. Okay. Right? And so they met in Detroit, and they discussed a couple things. One is, how do you get issues that affect people of color into the mainstream environmental uh, uh, you know, organizations? Sierra Club, obviously, being one of them. Uh, and then the, the, the thing that's, I think, remarkable about environmental justice and, and the, the aspect of it that I, I try to maintain, even as I build out the center, is that it's a, it's a bottom-up. It's a bottom-up okay, uh, movement, right? It didn't start with eggheads thinking, oh, there's a problem. How do we solve it? It was people who were experiencing the environmental injustice saying, you know, something's happening. We know something's wrong. We're going to figure out what it is, and then we're going to take action, right? So when you think about North Carolina, right, and it being the birthplace, that's essentially what happened is the grassroots people uh, creating things that, that, you know, we now call... Uh, uh, um, uh, like public epidemiology, or you know, uh, you know, uh, what, what, what's the science? Uh, uh, you know, citizen science, right? Yes, it's just yes, like yes. citizen-based epidemiology, right? So there, there, uh, um, uh, there were people in Chicago, there were people in North Carolina, there were people in Louisiana, right, who were you know noticing things like disease cl uh, clusters. Right, and then trying to trace back those disease clusters to the environmental contaminants, which is which is why you know the the uh, the movement like arose from people a noticing there's a problem and then trying to figure out what was causing it and then moving back up the chain and turn it into kind of policy interventions, but also you know political interventions. used. So uh, when I worked in the Clinton administration. The uh, at that point the uh, 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 the I forget its proper name, but it was the it was the National uh, People of Color Environmental Group. Okay, that that brought the issue of environmental justice to the Clinton administration and said, you know, we we want this to be part of the agenda. And so what the president did was to. Uh, uh, asked the Justice Department, and so it fell on to me, to draft an executive order for environmental justice. So that's how the, uh, the executive order 12898 got written. Yeah. I, I worked with, you know, my staff was incredibly good. We worked across agencies, um, and we tried to do a couple of things. Okay. One, we tried to craft a definition of what an environmental justice community is, and then we tried to create a process through which agencies would assess their own programs against the effects on these environmental justice communities. Uh, and so it was, it was basically we asked the agencies to prepare strategic plans 
to address environmental justice. Uh, and, you know, it was a, I, 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 I'm happy with it, and it's important. It was an important step, but it was obviously just a first step. Okay. Right. All right. And so the, its current uh, iteration um, under the, the uh, Biden administration kind of refines some of those uh, the uh, categories, right, and expands it and creates uh, funding for environmental justice, which is a, a key thing. So that's the way I got into it. Um, as a policy matter. And then I, when I left the government and started writing, and then I was writing about environmental justice. So, um, you know, kind of the early, uh, the early issues. Um, and one of the things that's happened is that, you know, initially people were focused on the maldistribution of uh, burdens. So environmental burden, we have an industrial society, industrial economy, it produces pollution. Uh, pollution has health uh, impacts, negative health impacts. They're not evenly distributed. Right? So the first thing that the EJ community was focused on was the distribution of environmental burdens. Right? But then they said, wait a minute, you know, we don't want, you know, our, our goal isn't to have everybody suffer the same. Our our goal is to is to reduce the pollution load, generally, even as we address the distribution of environmental burdens. Okay, right. So so it's it's a it's a positive program, not just a negative program. It's not just stop this. It's no, we need to do this. Right. Okay, that okay. that was critical. Yeah. Uh, the the the. Uh, other thing was it moved from just focusing on distribution to questions of uh, how decisions get made you know, at all levels of government, from local government up to the federal government. And so questions of participatory justice became integrated into environmental justice. Okay. And for a long time, distributional concerns and participation concerns were the, the main things. So that's Long answer to the question. I apologize, but if, if that's how I got to doing the work that I do. Okay. So I you sparked so many other questions now. So with me being a forester, one of the things that I noticed, and I went to school in the 90s, is that when we would talk about civil culture or talk about uh, easements and rights, we, we never really, uh, and I hope my professors don't get mad when they hear this, we didn't go into environmental mode. Like I had to step outside of the curriculum to go into environmental law. So with that, here's my next question, which was not written down, just it, it sparked something in it. You mentioned environmental justice, environmental movement, and civil rights. Now I come from a family that was leaders in the civil rights movement. My question is, you either found or created a way to me to like sit at the center of these three. So I wanted to know, like, have you had any uh, challenges with explaining the things that you're doing, let's say like from one audience to the other, like, yeah, uh, because like coming up in civil rights, if I talked to any of my family members, they wouldn't, they, they'll say, oh yeah, I've heard about environmental justice, but they wouldn't be as informed, obviously. And then sometimes I've spoken with people in environmental justice and sometimes there's a little lack of the civil rights. And even if you go into conservation, it seems like there's like a lot of gray areas. So that's why I just like to know, like, have you had to not only push the culture up against agencies and help government bring them along, but even in the movements themselves, you know, like have you had to do, do with any of that? Um, the, the, the answer is yes. Okay. Uh, but it's complicated, right? Because, okay. because, um, 
the one of the things, but we were writing the executive order. One of the things I did uh, was I looked around the country for uh, local environmental justice groups. Okay. And I invited them into the Justice Department. And I said, just sit and talk to me. Tell me what you do, right? Uh, and this is over a couple of weeks. I've met for several hours a day with each of these groups. Uh, and I took notes and my staff took notes. Um, and a couple of things emerged. Something that is exactly what you said, which is that uh, um, people understood it as a... Uh, uh, the harms that they were suffering as a as a kind of racial justice issue. Some people understood it as a class based issue. And this is about poor people, right? Yes. Uh, but remember, in the civil rights, well, you had you know it was Dr. King himself, right, who joined those two things together, right? Right. The poor people movement and the civil rights movement. So you combine those, and then you bring in kind of the democratic, small d democratic question of okay. okay how have these communities been excluded from decision making and how has that exclusion from decision making resulted in the harms that we're seeing right and when you start to talk about it that way uh um the question of the relationship between environmental protection and civil rights protection become clearer the other thing that was really important and i stress this when i teach the class is that um, if you listen to the communities, right, the definition of environmental justice is far broader than just the pollution statutes, right? So, so you know, when you talk to these communities, transportation issues, they're environmental justice issues, right? Access to access to mass transit, right? Uh, uh, city planning. Right, access to say, and th I'm going to be one way that stuck in my mind because it was, it was, you know, stressed me that a, a woman said, "Look, my kids don't have a safe way to get to school if they walk, right? So the design of the infrastructure a a has left my kids more at risk to hazards, of, you know, traffic, you know, uh, pollution loads, you know, thing." from the auto exhaust, right? That, then then if you d planned, you know, you have a school, you have housing, how are the kids going to get there? The ones who walk, not the ones who take the bus, but the ones who walk, right? So so they said, you got to, you know, you've got to integrate that into your thinking about environmental justice, mm -hmm. right? Right. Water, obviously, cr critical, right? But let's go to just to silver culture, right? Okay. Because, you know, the... That implicates, in my mind, and it did implicate it in the minds of some of the people I talked to, right? The uh, uh, control over decisions and have an impact apart from just the forest, right? The forest is is a way in which the water resources are managed well too, and have an impact on that, right? Right. So, so uh, like the quality, the stream quality, which is a pollution question, a non-point source pollution question, right? But it's also a question about downstream uses and the quality of the water, right? So, right. so these kinds of issues, right, you know, became right environmental justice issues. But if you talk just to an environmentalist, mm -hmm. they'd look at you cross-eyed. They wouldn't, they, yeah, they wouldn't see this. Like, so I'd say things like, "Well, look, the number." What they pointed out to me, the group I talked to, that that the 
there's a relation between the number of liquor stores that are permitted in this neighborhood and 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 gun gun injuries. Mm. Oh, okay, all right. And so now, is that an environmental issue? Well, certainly a land. Uh, certainly, it's a it's a it's an urban planning issue as a public health issue, right? And public health is part of the environment, right? And the environmental justice movement said you got to think about public health when you think about the environment, and that's what the, the and that's also a civil rights questions, right? Because these communities are more heavily targeted for these kinds of businesses, okay. right? Other thing, this, I'm talking about LA here. This is what I have in my mind. Is that is California? So the I don't like what he's talking about. Yeah, okay, is the, the relation, the 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 distance between gun gun injuries and hospitals. So you have like the you can map out where gunshot injuries happen and where hospitals are. Mm-hmm. Right, and what you discover is that they're not in the same part of the city. Oh, right. So that's a public health issue. And then if you then the the, the capacity to access those hospitals, mm-hmm. which is a, a transit issue, for transportation, so, you know, and so those are both civil rights issues and environmental issues. Strict environmentalists would say, "Okay, Taurus, you're trying to boil the ocean here. There's you know, there's too many problems." I said, "No, no." What I want to do is to listen to what the people tell me the issues are that are facing them, which of them are, uh, which of them can you analyze using the tools of, an, of environmental thinking, including urban planning, right, things like that. How can you use, bring these tools to think about these problems? We need to reach out and get public health people help me understand this. We need to talk to city planners and have them help me think about this. We need to talk to foresters, help help us think about that because that then raises another issue, right? Which is access to green space, right? Which which as, as climate now has been overlaid on top of this, right? You discover that uh, uh, heat islands are more commonly located in poor and uh, neighborhoods uh, that are occupied by people of color, right? Right. So these these people suffer from uh, additional heat stress. Though some of the literature on green space and access to green space is tied to levels of stress. So if you're in a community that doesn't have access to green space parks or even boulevards with trees or or trees along the street, right? Sure, those kind of neighborhoods. The research has indicated the stress level in those communities are higher, but there's also then two environmental issues that are that are triggered by that. One is trees, bushes, greenery actually um, reduce the amount of particulate matter, probably because it captures it. Right. Yes. So that if the if you're in a neighborhood that doesn't have a lot of uh, of uh, green cover or a canopy of some sort. Right, you're then more subject to the harms of air pollution, especially particulate pollution, which is tied to asthma, which is tied to you know, yeah, right, yes. So, so, so there's that. Okay. But then, but then the heat island effect is you know is is important because that is then tied to energy usage. That's right. Right. You got to cool down. Right. Right. So, so that's tied to the decisions we make about energy production. Distributed, you know, distributed solar, for example, how we got it, you know, so it gets connected that way. And, you know, I wouldn't have started thinking about these things if I hadn't just talked to the people at the, at the street, at the grassroots, 
and listen to them, right? And it's not like they come in and say, this is an environmental justice problem, right? They come in and tell you what's what the problem is. And then I think about, okay, what tools do I have as a civil rights lawyer, as a lawyer generally, right? as an environmentalist to think about these issues? And what's, what tools do I need to help me think about this? And that's, that's what I realized, you know, nobody does anything by themselves, right? So you've got to build a network of people who are committed to addressing these issues and have skills that they can bring to it. Yes. Right. You oak. Yeah. You must, yes, I was about to say that's And it compounds a lot of these communities don't have the ageless ear. They don't have the power to go to the, to control where the generator is going to be or where, where, where the pollution sources, uh, are getting located in North Minneapolis, we have the Hurricane Incinerator, and that's right by North Minneapolis. Uh, so it's given out all these all these toxins as compounding, and it's just gone right back to the same to the same source. Yes, less trees. There's a lot of a lot of dark spaces where it just creates a harder place to live. Mm -hmm. A lot more stress. A lot more stress. Because it's a harder place to live. That's a good way to put it. It's a harder place to live, and so it increases the stress. Stress is a health you know, issue. It is. It is. I mean, and, and you know, I was reading some demographic uh, statistics yesterday on life expectancy. Okay. If you don't think stress is a public health issue, look at the impact of stress on longevity, on specific communities. Yes. Uh, right. And you can look at it in different parts of the country. So in the, in, in below the Mason-Dixon line, that's, African-American men lose, I, I'm, I've forgotten the exact number, I'm going to say six years of life expectancy. And growing up, I was like, oh, it's all like, it's this and that, like you, you hear like the health explanations and they, for a long time, they're ignored stress. Right. They're like, yeah, my diet. Yeah. And then just more recently where they're talking about stress and yeah. you think about uh, injustices to the black community, to these different communities, right. that's the effect of this, like that's the effect. Like if you're in, like in, in the capital, I live in, around in North Carolina. Yeah. Cary, North Carolina, which is just the next town to the west, yeah. is 10 degrees cooler. In the, the, the index, in the 10 degrees cooler than Southeast Raleigh. Okay, where, 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 where I live. In Alabama, where I'm from, seriously, did this going to, I'm not making this up, everyone. I live in, my parents live in Fairfield, okay? Birmingham is, you know, so Fair, Fairfield is west side of Birmingham. The east side, and it's just on the other side of downtown, 30 degrees cooler than where my parents live. Also, that's where the food stores are, yeah. are on that side. So what I appreciate what you're continuing to educate me, looking at these of back and being educated again. And Mary Professor Torres is you you're making it you're making a difficult topic easy to make, you know, like to understand time to food, time to act, time to force your time to trees, but time to the, the the challenge of lifestyles that people live. And also in the black belt in, in Alabama, people walking in soup. That's a utility problem right there, right? And they wanted to blame the residents of that first. That's Captain Flowers' book, I believe. But really, it was the way that everything was built, the trailers, the houses, all of that. It was almost like it was intentional, which is why I want to ask you before going to talking about the center, you know, and, and please, you know, you can always say, no, talk, ask that. But do you, I, I wonder sometimes, was some of this intentional or was this you know, ignorance, not trying to sold anyone, just unawareness, you know, in the way cities were designed and the way things were planned, just, you know, just like to know what, you know, if you're doing my distribution. Let me say this, they were the, the, uh, you, the minute you say planning, 
Yes, there's intention. Now, now, right? Because that's what planning is about. It's 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 looking at the future and intentionally designing something. Now, if you're going to say, was this uh, um, uh, people deliberately targeting like the black community or targeting the brown community or targeting the red community? That's a different question, right? And it's, but but what you can say, Ed, let me give you an example from Texas, from Austin, Texas, right? Okay, right. The uh, uh, when they decided to put in the interstate, right? They put the interstate that divided West Austin from East Austin. Guess who lived where? Right. So the White Austin, White Austin is West Austin. You know, not White Austin is East Austin, right? Uh, and, and did they did they uh, intentionally uh, do this to contribute to segregation? Well, you know that's hard to prove. What you can say is that if they thought about it, right, they would have been able to foresee the consequences. So one of them is they it, 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 they're at minimum guilty of not thinking about it. Uh, you know, I'm trying to. I'm going to assume good faith, right? I'm going to assume good faith, right? But, but, but take minute. You're Minneapolis, right? Yeah. If you r- drive on the uh, the interstate through Minneapolis, it's crazy because you go this way, it goes this way, and then you go this way, right? And, and you ask yourself, why does it do that, right? It did. It did it because there was community involvement in the planning of the of the highway. Oh, right. So it it went around some neighborhoods. And, you know, it, it it's not quite the same big dividing line like I thirty five through through Austin. But it cut through black communities oh. and it went around the wealthy. So there's uh, there's a lot of history behind that, and it cut through a lot of parks that were integral to the community. Uh, I did work last summer with Judge Lane, and it it destroyed that it took the heart out of that community and it's a rebuilding process and ever since everything's just been different right and he talked residents uh hear the stories that they had growing up how they just went out the stream and just like enjoy be at the parks enjoy be all these spots yeah so it's not not you know now you know you, you their land was probably cheaper there Right. Oh, so, so, so then you say, oh, well, the comp, the government is reduced and we put it here. But then you have to ask, well, why was land cheaper there? Right. right. And that goes back, then that's part of the old planning, right? And seeing so that. Now, the funny thing, right, is now that Austin, you know, Austin's in this, this boom time right now, right? It's a, um, and so they're now talking about submerging, putting I 35 as it goes through Austin below grade. And then reconnecting with uh, with park bridges, uh, east to west Austin. And it, <laughs> you know, wow, who knows it'll happen? Because it'll be horribly expensive. But okay. the idea is, is we they can reconnect Austin. Okay. It makes, you know, my son, who's a filmmaker, right, did did made a film in which uh, uh a satiric look at some of the events in Austin, right? And it, it, he's one of the scenes that they're, this, this, these people are in a car, they're they're moving to Austin, looking around, they're driving on East Austin, right? Okay. And the signs are in Spanish, and you know, they're, uh, it, it said, God, we, we found a part of Austin, you know, and nobody lives here. <laughs> <laughs> Which captures, right, the idea of the invisibility, right? You know, no, West Austin doesn't look there yet. 
right? Yes. Right. Uh huh. But but the there's a, there's also a, a, a you know power plant in East Austin that, that is it going to get closed down? Maybe now it would close down, right? Is and so so you know when when you say is it intentional, right? The, my answer is that's a complex question, right? Okay. Now because it, because it's 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 built on layers of decision making that kind of cement in right disparities. Many of those disparities were based on race, mm-hmm. and were based on class, right? And as to you you know, as you build layer upon layer, you have that bottom you know the bottom justifications, which then get even if you're completely innocent, mm-hmm. right? Get reflected in the current decisions. That's why that's why I su- suggested to some of my students that that regardless of what expertise you bring, you've got to root that expertise in justice. Okay. And if you root that expertise, because if you try to add justice on as an afterthought, right, then it's just like icing on the cake. It's not like part of the cake, right? It's got to be cooked in. Yes. Right. Uh, but that means you got to, you know, have an, an idea of what justice means. Right. So that's, that's, it's, it's not like you, know, you trip over justice, but you got to, you have to think about it, and you have to have justifications because these are normative conclusions you're going to come to that then have to inform, uh, you know, the the uh, you know the urban planning process, the infrastructure process, the you know the energy policy, okay. you know things like that. So, I mean, you know, one other example. Okay. Okay. Distributed solar. It's a great idea, right? There's, you know, we can you know. We don't have to have centralized power plants if you can, you know, if people can generate the the, the electricity they need, right? right? But then the rule on net on net metering, right? The rule on on how much the utilities have to pay to buy the excess energy you produce. Do they pay wholesale rate or retail rate? Right. If you're the if you're the if you if, if if you're the homeowner, you want them to pay retail rate, like because then you become a producer selling it to them, right? Yeah, okay. Uh, as opposed to just a, a wholesale rate, which is you know the a lower figure, and it reduces the attractiveness of solar because you don't get you know you don't get that benefit. On the other hand, it it reduces the extent to which the maintenance of the infrastructure isn't passed on to uh, ratepayers who don't have solar. So, oh, so poor people basically have not been on the cutting edge of adding solar to their homes. But, so they're paying in their uh, utility bills part of the, as every utility bills like this, right, part of the, 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 the fee, the long-term fee for for building and ma- maintaining the grid that distributes the energy, right? One of the worries in California, right, is that you'll have people defecting from the the grid because they, you know, they're not getting the because of the the net metering question, right? Right. If they defect from the grid, on one hand, you could say, well, they're still doing a good thing. They're they're not using juice. Reading. Right. But it also means that the cost of maintaining that infrastructure is now going to be totally borne by those people who can't defect from the grid. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Right. 
Okay. So then that burden is exactly the burden. Exactly. The black belt, mm. the discipline, uh huh, the pain we got, the hill we live in, uh, the black belt, mm. the discipline, uh huh, the pain we got, the hill we live in. Black belt, got third degree, burns on the skin, scratching, it's hurting me. Got a rash, this emergency, don't have to wait jobs, mom is working three. No matter how much overtime is not enough to pay for the damages, oh and breathing's tough. This raw sewage that I'm walking through, if mom don't fix this problem, we gon' have to move. The black belt, the discipline, yeah, the pain we got, the hell we live in. Uh, the black belt, the discipline, yeah, the pain we got. The hell we live in. Black Bell got hookworms, throwing problems in Durham, Lowndes County, and Mossville, New Orleans to Knoxville, Halifax to Georgia. The broker get poorer. Technology on the Florida bill. COVID in Florida, pollution in toilets, flush away supporters. This living ain't gorgeous. Exposed to phosphorus. We silent, we suffer. We silent, we suffer. We silent, we suffer. The savior life music. The Black Bell. When I looked at the dog, I like, oh man, okay. Yeah, we go on like five different tangents. Yeah. Well, I'd like to ask something for clarity for some of our listeners, right? Okay, so diversity, equity, and inclusion. But the two words, or three words that have been added to that is belonging, access, and justice. And I'd just like to ask you, as a professional, a leader, and originator of a lot, could you like maybe just like share what? Like when you say, you know, to your students, and you've also been the the, the originator of now classes that focus on the indigenous community too here on campus, and thank you for that. But like, just in simple terms, uh, you know, what like what is like what is it to think about justice? Like, I know the environmental justice has like those five tenets, and you know, we don't we we want to work to not create victims and redistribute the challenges and different things. But just what would be just kind of if if there is one an easy hook of we think about justice, this is what it is. When I said that you've got to have a, a question of justice that in mind, you've got to answer that question. Everybody has to answer the question of what justice means, right? Uh, so, you know, at, the, at the, the most formal level, right, it's treating uh, like things alike. Right? And that's, that's what justice is, right, is to treat treat. treat. The question of which things are alive is where the the, the problem is, right? So, so what what you have to ask students is, if I do X, am I going to contribute to the continued inequality, which is an expression of injustice that I see in this sector or this sector or this sector? If the answer is yes, then you've got to go back and refine your proposals for refine the way you think about it. That's right. That's what happens when I say you have to think about justice at the beginning, right? Not not at the end. Yes. So, uh, the, my executive director, Michael Golopter, who I just hired for the Yale Center for Environmental Justice, he was one of the creators of the uh, Green Leadership Trust. And the Green Leadership Trust is, uh, as you may or may not know, it's it's a it's a it's an organization that is made up of uh, people of color who are on the boards of the mainstream environmental groups. So NRDC, yeah, Safe Community and Humor, EDF, EDS, Clean Clean Water Action, yeah, you know, all the, you go through Sierra Club, et cetera. You start to put a name them, right? Okay. 
And the idea is, uh, one, so that we can learn from each other about what's going on, but also how do we bring these issues into the mainstream environmental groups so that they can start to integrate them into the way they approach problems. So uh, when I think about, you know, they, I, in some ways avoided your question, you know, exactly. <laughs> uh, but because there isn't a simple answer, right? Okay. But, but the one question you can ask yourself as you think about these problems is, what injustices do I notice? And does the way I'm thinking about the solution to the problem that I've identified exacerbate that injustice or, or ameliorate that injustice? Okay. It doesn't have to solve it completely, but it can't contribute to it. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. And, and uh, because it's going to, you know, because we t- already talked about all these interlinking systems, mm-hmm. right? yeah. that, uh, you know, you can't, you, what, what they, they mentioned this in one of the, one of the basketball games I was watching. Like, like, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, <laughs> right? And it, it, it and 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 people, it, it applies to environmental problems, right? And people bring different expertise. So you're a forester, you're going to bring the expertise of, of forestry, whether you applied it in an urban setting, right, or the the uh, commercial, you know, uh, uh, setting, yes. right? Yeah. I I have people who are going to be, you know, uh, uh work on air, right? So they're going to bring their expertise on air. Some are going to bring their expertise on indoor air pollution, right? They're going to be able to bring that in. But what I want to do is to ask those questions about justice, even as they plan their projects. Okay. So before, so now, recognizing that you've been here, you've been busy, <laughs> you know, and I, it was an honor to meet you in, you know, when I was working here, and now you've been teaching multiple classes working two major, major schools on campus. And now, of course, now leading the Environmental Justice Center here on campus, uh, what would you say is the primary focus right now of the Environmental Justice Center? You know, is it about citizens' rights? Is it about, you know, uh, ameliorating pollution? Is it about uh, educating more people on the challenges that communities of color, where we're talking black, brown, red in particular, are, are dealing with, or is it primary to educate, you know, people on the things that you can do, you being me or whoever, this is how we can rectify or try to reverse as much as we can these conditions that we're really fighting now. Well, the focus has been to work with community groups. Okay. Right. Okay. Uh, but one of my goals is to create a program here involving internships, you know, research, et cetera, so that the students can imagine a career in environmental justice. So when they leave YSE or the YLS, right, they can imagine a career in environmental justice. They, they don't think of it as something that, that they have to add on to what they, you know, what their real job is. I want that to be their real job. Right. So wherever they, so that that's one of the goals is to create career paths in environmental justice. We've um, we work with community groups so that the students and the the internships uh, and the fellowships that they have mean that they've got to be embedded in these groups. They've got to bring value to these groups, and they need to learn how to un- uh, 
talk to and understand the communities that are that are at the heart or at the bottom of, of the environmental justice movement this one so we're starting uh, lo- uh, locally and uh, regionally uh, want to go nationally one of the things that that uh, our EJ Center does that, that I don't think a lot of the EJ centers do do is we have a a, a real focus on working with indigenous uh, tribal communities so that uh, we uh, have uh, some long-term agreements with a couple of tribes okay. um, in which we're uh, helping them with their programs and they, and they tell us what they need. We try to get people to mash them up with it. We've had one internship on the ground uh, last summer. Um, but what we wanted is we want to create a space where we can think about issues facing uh, tribal communities because they're different, right, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the environmental justice context. Right? That, that's one. The other thing we want to do is we want to make uh, connections with tribal colleges just like we're trying to do with the HBCUs. Okay. Right. Okay. So that would create uh, pathways for these tribes to educate their kids so they can go back and run all these programs. Got it. Probably get all simply. And, you know, uh, you know, you have a, a Yale credential is a real, it's a, it's an asset. To be frank, it's an asset. And so the extent to which we can create that asset, that value in these communities, that'll be useful too. So that's that's what we're what we're trying to do. We're also trying to add classes. So um, you know we have we teach environmental justice, and then I expanded to be environmental justice and climate justice because I want to bring those two together and want people to think about them. Um, and to you know, apropos the earlier example I gave, mm-hmm. right? Is uh, uh, you know decarbonizing. The, the economy is not necessarily about environmental justice. Right? It may be that it's necessary, but it's not necessarily about environmental justice. So I want you to think about how it overlaps, right? Okay. Uh, uh, that's one. Uh, the other thing we're doing is, is I want to create more uh, courses uh, related to uh, indigenous groups and studies. So we have uh, federal Indian law we have added now advanced federal Indian law. Um, we have a co-management clinic, uh, tribal co-management clinic. Then we have uh, another Indian law clinic. So we have those four. And we're hoping to add one more um, that directly involves uh, kind of co-management of uh, timber resources or, or forestry resources. Okay. And, and okay, I, I, this is, we're, it's not even off the ground yet. It's just the planning stages. But we're already thinking that that you know we're going to focus on on domestic uh, in bringing indigenous knowledge to forest management. This is kind of the idea, mm. right? Okay, focusing on, focusing on domestic uh, uh, nation, tribal nations, but also we want to do North America, right? Okay. So that 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 we can integrate uh, indigenous knowledge across North America. And make it applicable, you know, to 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 Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Yes. The way the turn it may take, I hope, eventually, will be to think about systems, so that that we can talk across systems. So 
uh, what are indigenous people in Southeast Asia do, right, in terms of silver culture, mm. right? Yeah. And it, one of the things I've discovered is that a lot of the way tribes think about about um, kind of forest resources maps onto the way you know foresters think about it. The foresters don't think foresters think they invented this stuff. He t- I was just about to thank the doc. I was going to say that, but right. Right. It doesn't, and in fact, they, it grows out of the the way forests were managed, right? Uh, and you know, it's, it, it's, it, you know, since Yale was the the forestry school, right? The the first one, right? If we can show leadership in that area, I think it'll be an important thing. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I was going to I, I was going to say that like uh, I, I I know you're always intentional. And that, you know, and I was going to say, like, a lot of folks in forestry sometimes think that we're originating even things like prescribed burning and even the various ways of cutting. And I'm like, no, you all got that, okay, from relatives. I don't know what you all are talking about. So I appreciate you sharing that. And so with that, I know we, we, we've talked about environmental justice. We've talked about environmental movement. We've talked about civil rights. I, I, I'd like to, okay, I'd like to ask one other thing, but it's, it's a little term, you know, uh, it's a little less for. Uh, with you... Also, being indigenous yourself, coming here from across the country, coming here to this to, to this institution, and also being moved in around the country, working with the U.S. government, and I've been here on camp. How like how do you? Like I said, it's a little different. How do you stay motivated? Feel up, see up, there, smile. That's what I want. Okay, how do you stay motivated, invigorated, encouraged? You know, even in an environment that you have succeeded in, obviously, but how do you do this day and week and monthly? And, you know, and, and I'm, I, I want to still come in either renewed or at least like I am recharged to keep this going. But how do you do it? Because I know it's not easy. Uh, I know like as a person has been here, you know, you, you're up against politics all the time. You're up against policies all the time. So I just would love to just hear more of that human aspect of what keeps you moving and creating. Um, you know, some of it might just be who I am. I mean, I'm not a channel, so, you know, I'll do it. Uh, first of all, I, I want to say that, that, you know, um, you know, I'm Mexican-American, uh, by mother's side of my family is all completely indigenous, right? Yes. Um, the, I don't want to get religious on you, right? But, 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 you know, uh, I do believe that I've been lucky. I've been lucky. I'm lucky. I've had a lot of opportunities. Uh, you know, I had Joe Sachs taking that interest in me early on and, you know, shoving me into the academy. If I hadn't gone to study with Joe, you know, and, and Joe was the kind of person who could, when he called you, you pick up the phone, right? So when he, when he was calling on my behalf, you know, so that's, that's luck. Um, you know, but I, and I'm real, I've been surrounded by, by uh, uh, enormously generative and and generous people most of my life uh um but i also believe that you know uh, what is it to who much is given much is asked uh and you know you never i said earlier you never do anything by yourself right uh and i think that's part of the thing that that motivates me is is you, you there are people i've worked with who uh uh, continue to work, you know, in situations that are much more difficult than the one I work in, right? 
and continue to keep their head down the shoulder of the, the wheel, right? Um, and so, uh, uh, you, you know, I, I don't have it here in this office, but, you know, in that, uh, I need to put it up. I have a picture of my father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather uh, coming out of the mill, right? They're wearing their work clothes, right? And they're covered with, uh, you know, dust from the new steel mill, right? So they were covered with stuff and dust. So, so whenever I'm feeling sorry for myself, oh, God, I'm so stressed, I'm working so hard, I'd look at that picture and say, you know, that's hard work. You get to work in the shade. <laughs> right? You know, so and dry your tears and get back to work. Right, right. And, and they did that so I could do this. Right. They did that so I could do this. Right. That's one. The second thing is, I've been blessed with having great students my entire career. Right. So when I look, like, when I teach uh, federal Indian law, one of the funny things I get to do is I say, you know, uh, my student litigated this case, right? Uh, my, my student uh, was is the uh, attorney general for Napaho, right? My student, you know, and, I, and, and, and you know, I had students who got out and do done amazing things, right? And and it, and continued. So, you know, that's that teaching motivated. I also, you know. Uh, which students produce work for me that's good. I I push them harder to make it better. So this last year, I've had eight students get their pa papers that they wrote for me published. Wow, what? Eight. Eight. Wow. It, in just one year. Right. Right. So, you know, so, you know, if you demand excellence, you get excuse. Right. And, and so, so seeing that, like, actually continues to motivate me, right? And if you and you know the you know the uh, I mean the reality is there I'm surrounded by talented students, so what I got to do is is make sure that that talent doesn't get uh, uh, stymied, isn't right? That there's an avenues for that that talent to to blossom, right? So, you know, so, you know, see that, um, and I also enjoy what I do, so, you know, but I also play music like you, so, uh-huh, <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, I have other, other aspects of my life that I get to, to, to feed, yes, sir. wow, well, we've asked, I've asked anything, you, we have anything, Just, yeah, I'm, I have all of our questions and some events of them, so, <laughs> Good. Yeah. Well, thank you. This is a, this is what I I, I did most of the yak, and I apologize. I was, no, no, no. That's, that's who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I assume you'll edit it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have to edit out my file out? Not yours. No, you were great, man. It was no this professional. Thank you. Uh, I didn't. Is there anything else that you would like to say, though? You know, just in line with this, because I know we ask questions like I didn't say this or I didn't ask this, and if it, that is, I apologize on that part. Oh, there. The, uh, I think the what you know, Yale has to continue its its uh, uh, policies to respond to the student body, to respond to the, the the faculty. I think absolutely necessary, um, right? But they also need to focus on something that that I think um, we do here, which is produce leaders. Right now, I don't mean necessarily senators and congressmen, all what we produce those two, right? Right. I'm talking about people who's who who take ideas out there 
in the world and make them happen, right? Even if they don't get, you know, national recognition, right? They're, they're, they're producing the work that produces change, and that's the kind of leadership that I really want to help support. So when I say I want to, you know, create, uh, I want to create the, the, the circumstances so that students can imagine a, a, a career in environmental justice, I'm not going to say what that career has to be. I want to say that, that they can take what they learn about environmental justice to, and apply it to the careers they choose so that the, that the career they choose will be an environmental justice career. And then I can, you know, I say I, in my in, in Indian law class, I, I said, hey, you know, my, my student litigated this. My student, you know, decided that, my, right? Right, that kind of thing. I can say, well, you know, my, you know, my former student is doing X, doing Y, right, in environmental justice. So if they, if they're doing it, they start, they were sitting where you were, right? right. They're sitting where you were, right? Yes. You can do it too. You, you encouraged. I'm encouraged. Yeah, I'm ready for the summer from this. Right. Yeah, I was just <laughs> yeah, yeah. For all of you book lovers, book readers, there's a new text out for you. Mind Heart for Diversity, written by Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley. This book is for those who care about matters of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Those who want to talk about race or gender challenges or issues going on in the world. For those who don't want to hold a book in your hand or have a physical copy, the book is also available on Audible. So thank you for supporting the book, My Heart for Diversity, written by, once again, Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, founder and CEO of My Heart for Diversity Consulting, LLC. Thank you. Everyone, as you can see, this is why I and we, Bennett, was so encouraged to talk to Professor Torres. Uh, you know, he's a superstar to me. I think well, I say he, he's a superstar to us, but you also understand why his success is tied to the people that he's connected to, loves his students, loves his work. And, uh, and, and he, he's just awesome. And I mean that he's humble, but I'm saying that he's awesome. Professor, thank you for your time. This has been, uh, I know, just another outstanding recording of the Hardwood Podcast. So this is Dr. Easley signing off, Ben of the Lupo signing off, and we thank you all for tuning in. And uh, please take what he said because it's like it, the world is yours, and you take this opportunity and create and make it better for those coming with as well as after you, but by always remembering those who came before you. And I want to thank you for saying that because it really made me think about my grandparents who would be at the same thing. So, Professor, thank you again for your time. Thank you. All right, appreciate it. Yes, sir. All right, peace. Peace.